This. This is, this is diversified, diversified, diversified game, game, game. game. A podcast giving entrepreneurial advice from a diverse and inclusive perspective with Kelly. He may agree, he may oppose, and it's more than just race, it's about, you know, ideas. So, let the game begin. Hey, it's Kelly. And today on Diversified Game, you guys get ready. I have somebody who has took on the Supreme Court, Simon Tan. He's going to tell us about his book, Slanted, and how he took and won. Simon, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, I'm doing all right. Thanks so much for having me. On and, and being so flexible. And I mean, let's just get into it because for someone to take on the Supreme Court, usually we just think of like um, Italian mob eyes or something, you know, um, who, who's taking on the Supreme Court and won? Are you the Teflon Don? Give us the story on, you know, what inspired Slanted in that move. Well, it kind of all began with just a band. I wanted to call my band The Slants. Uh, that was in 2006, but the government had issues with it because they said that the name of my band was uh, offensive to Asian people, even though we're an all Asian band. And so that kind of kicked off a really long battle that lasted almost 10 years. And yeah, eventually it did go up to the US Supreme Court. And it was kind of just a really surreal experience. I mean, I wasn't the one making the oral arguments, like standing before the court or anything. I had attorneys for that. I was just the one kind of stirring up trouble on the sidelines and trying to get people to listen to our story of what it what meant and what it means for people like us, like people of color, to be able to define ourselves instead of having other people do it for us. You basically took on the fight that, you know, many rappers took on in the um, 80s and, and 90s. And I, I just have to know, was this issue that you couldn't put it on like your album cover? Um, you know, you couldn't be introduced as this like what freedoms did they take away from you and it was it just for this country or was it you know um worldwide so it was just for this country it was for a trademark registration and what that ultimately does is affects how you're able to do business like if you can get certain record label deals or distribution deals uh also the ability to protect our own name and if we are unable to get it in our own country, it makes it a lot difficult, a lot more difficult to get it in other countries as well. So it certainly had kind of an international impact uh, as a band that would travel internationally. But, you know, first and foremost, we should have gotten it here, especially since we are in a country that's supposed to guarantee freedom of speech. But as you notice, this is uh, not something that's uncommon, particularly for rappers or other people as well, because the government, when they get to basically say uh, what is appropriate and what's not appropriate, well, it turns out they tend to rule against people who aren't normally in those positions of power. Definitely. And we've seen many rock and roll, you know, artists be able to do things that other artists couldn't do. And the fact that, you know, you couldn't copyright, that that is such a... Um, you know, we're seeing that now with, you know, the talk of Facebook, which you can and you can't say. And, you know, they've been kicking people off for years. Now that they're kicking off politicians is why it's making headlines. Let's be honest. They're kicking off white politicians and, you know, white people who have a certain um, take that is maybe different than uh, it's not liberal. So did you do you find that um, with social media, was that also an issue or do you still have that issue if you say, hey, we're going to say we're the slant that you can be, you know, 
swiped off certain social media with the name. We never really had any issues with social media and same thing. Like we were still touring and playing shows and that's because like no one else had a problem with it. In fact, other areas of the government were totally fine with us. Like we did shows for prisoners. We did shows for the military serving overseas. And we even collaborated on an album with uh, Barack and Michelle Obama on an anti-bullying campaign. So all these other areas of the government were totally cool with the work we were doing because we were essentially doing anti-racist work, except for the trademark office, because they were just so stuck in kind of that legal mud pit that they created for themselves. And, and how long did that battle last? Because you know the government worked so fast, <laughs> when, especially when we need them. <laughs> yeah, from start to end, uh, it was a little bit over eight years. Whew. Now, for those who you know say, look, I want to fight something too, how do you afford to fight that for eight years because attorneys are expensive, um, the government, you know, they have all the time in the world, so, you know, how, how did you make that work? Did you find an organization that would help, you know, fight for your rights? Well, for about uh, six of those years, my attorneys actually worked for free. They agreed to do it pro bono. So that lifted up a huge uh, burden, like the, probably the most expensive part of the process. But the government still has a lot of fees. Like every time you talk to them, every time you want to go to court, you got to pay more and more fees. So I, I took on a lot of side hustles. At one point, I had, uh, I think, almost 10 jobs in a single year, just doing part-time work here and there, just trying to make ends meet so that I could afford all those fees. And then at the very end, like the when we got to the Supreme Court, we had a, a foundation that was generous enough to help cover those fees for us. Wow. That, that's, that's, yeah, that's dedication just to fight for your right. And, you know, please tell us, after you fight for your rights, you're able to do all of this, then, you know, and you're still able to, to tour, please tell us you then had like a platinum album or double, you know, double platinum or diamond even. Like what, what happens after all of that and you win? Unfortunately, not a lot. I mean, like in terms of my music career, so it's not like you win a case at the Supreme Court and all of a sudden you're killing it on the billboard charts. And it's not like the government says, you know what, you paid all these fees, we were wrong, we're gonna give you your money back. They don't do any of that. They're just like, here's the piece of paper, we're good. But on the other side of it, uh, the part that I'm proud of is that we are able to strike down this law, a law that had been on the books for 70 years and that had been used primarily to deny rights to people of color and members of the LGBTQ community. I mean, the government had been getting away with it for almost 70 years. These were laws that were written in the Jim Crow era and the height of like some of the most racist actions the government could take. And we were finally able to start uh, stripping away at those laws. And for that, I'm, I'm just grateful that other people don't have to go through such a long and degrading process like I had to, that we could finally pave the way so that artists can actually have a right to express themselves. And, you know, it, even though we didn't make that platinum album, um, it, it, it was totally worth it for me in the end. And, you know, I got to spend a lot of time on the road. Uh, we, instead of just playing rock and roll clubs and theaters and anime conventions that we normally play, we started doing a lot of law schools and playing at a lot of lawyers' offices. So that was, you know, ended up being pretty fun too. Awesome. And, and the band started in, you know, Portland, Oregon, which I, I know well, just coming out of Seattle for six years. Um, have you guys been able to expand and, and where's the furthest that you guys have performed? Has it gone overseas yet? 
Uh, furthest is probably uh, when I did appearances in Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, uh, Japan. So, you know, we've been all over the place uh, in North America, Australia, Asia, Europe. Um, so, you know, we spend most of our time on the road here, except for you know, the last year and a half. But uh, most, most of our band's career was just touring up and down each of those freeways that took us like, you know, from Oregon to California, all the way across to Florida, up to New York. And, and it was just like, we were constantly doing circles around the U S. Awesome. And, and, you know, everybody, when, when you say a word, you know, that some might seem derogatory and others are saying, Hey, embrace it. And we're going to, we're going to flip it. Is the band, um, do you have, you know, are you covering how many places in Asia? You know, is is do you have Korean members, Japanese members, Chinese members, uh, Hanoi and Filipino? Like how 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 many areas are covered? And then I'm gonna go somewhere with that because it's hard to please everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I've had a lot of turnover over the years with the band, especially since we were stuck in that big legal case. Right now, um, of our band, we've only have members of Taiwanese, Chinese, and Japanese descent. And then even after that, over the years, we've had people from Korea, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, Vietnam. But, you know, that's just a very, very small percentage. Uh, the, the reality is that when you talk about Asia, you're talking about over 100 different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages. It includes large chunks of Russia as well. And most people don't even realize that. It's, it's like way more diverse than we even realize. But that's part of the interesting challenge when it comes to like defining a group growing up in the bay area uh my filipino friends uh, about to get into arguments and fights with people of different asian descent over you know same way uh mexicans and spaniards you put them in the room long enough somebody's going to talk about who stole whose gold and and you know who owes who what but you you find that you know i bet if the band's name was fob because I've seen folks about to, you know, fight over someone calling someone a fob, and that's fresh off, uh, off the boat, folks. Um, they they probably would not have said anything, <laughs> right? They would have been like, oh, fob, okay, yeah, sure. But because you decided to take the name that, you know, it, it can be the most, most hurtful, I, I assume, um, in the community where people try to, you know, degrade the, the culture, that they love at the same time because folks love Asian culture. You can see it in, in not just the restaurants, not everything, movies, you know, even though there's not a fair representation uh, nowadays. But do you, do you think that media and the entertainment just kind of wanted to control how you even saw yourself? Because I, I, I find that with Asian culture, it's like, hey, yep. Stay in this box. Be the safe minority. No, don't 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 say Black Lives Matter because that, that no 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 don't worry about what the Filipinos the Cambodians don't worry you're you're special like do you, do you get that vibe ever with you know maybe it's government maybe it's you know just media with, with what you had to go through yeah I mean the reality is that people are going to try and put you in a box whenever they can out of the convenience for themselves not necessarily for the community and I think. Our whole battle, our struggle, and even the reason why we chose a name like The Slants was because we said we were basically saying, hey, at the end of the day, we should have the right to define ourselves as we want, as what, you know, what we think is appropriate. We don't care what other people think. They're not a part of our community. We should have that right. But you're right that um, 
time and time again, people tried to kind of misclassify us. People assumed that we were, that we didn't speak English, even though we're all Asian Americans, we're all born here. We, we grew up here, you know, even events where I was the keynote speaker. And after I gave like an hour long speech and we performed all of our songs are in English, by the way, sometimes I would go up to people in the audience and they would be like, do you speak English? Where do you speak? Where'd you learn it? I'm like, I was born in San Diego. What do you, you know, it's, it, it can be challenging to always be seen as like some other person, some exotic group, but that's also the same reason why we got to push boundaries, make people like actually think about the assumptions that they hold about us. Like the fact that we call ourselves a slants to me, I think it's kind of a uh, funny because like, for, like it's not true. Like not all Asian people have slanted eyes and we're not the only people with slanted eyes on the whole planet, but it's a stereotype that people have. So we like to use it to kind of put it back in people's faces. And when non-Asian people come up to me and say like, why would you use this? This is offensive. I'm like, well, why is it offensive? Like, I, I like to make people think about like the reason why, like, I mean, here's something for you to consider. Like I, in my mind, there would be no such thing as a racial slur, if racism didn't exist, if it wasn't integrated into our system, if people weren't racist to begin with, because it would just be another word. Words are meaningless unless they have some kind of shared expression. And because people have been so racist to Asian people, all of a sudden these words are a little bit more loaded, but that's what we try and call attention to and say like, hey, these are things that we need to be addressing in our world. Um, not every Asian person has planted eyes, because I think it's what it's called, like the epicanic fold or whatnot. And I'm like, I have cousins who, you know, they would be teased. Hey, is your, is your father, you know, uh, Asian, you know, growing up because their eyes were just tight. And you're like, hold on. When you think about how the world started, if you believe you know everything was together at one point and how folks migrated which is just science folks i know some folks don't believe in science so <laughs> yeah. issue because of course science is fake now um well but you know how we are just kind of you know just one people and we find ways to mess that up um was merchandise you know did that sell because i could see you know racist people saying hey, i'm gonna buy this just so I can talk about the slants and, you know, wear a shirt saying the slants just to kind of maybe piss someone off. Or you have the other person who's the, I just really want to support and I'm vibing with what you guys are saying. Like was merchandise a big thing with you guys? Yeah. I mean, we sold a pretty good amount of t-shirts and CDs and things over the years. And most of the time it was for people who, who wanted to support what we were doing. I didn't know of anybody who, who bought it just to be, you know, trying to, be provocative or anything like that but then again if someone wanted to do that they can make their own t-shirt and i'd rather the money go to us anyway <laughs> you know i just like for the same reason someone could buy like an nwa shirt and be straight up racist but at the end of the day the money's still going to our community and it's better than them kind of making their own signs or doing whatever i i don't really look at people's intentions when it when it comes to that kind of thing it's not like i'm like hey we're gonna refuse to sell you a piece of merchandise uh, because you might have a belief system. If anything else, I'm like, if you want to buy it and you want to be a douchebag about it, that's fine. But you're going to have to experience the consequences. The same thing with like language. I'm like, you can try and use our band as an excuse to justify using racial slurs. It, you know, you can use racial slurs if you want, but you, at the end of the day, will have to face those consequences about it. And that might mean other people pushing back on you. It might mean getting some hate. 
And it might mean like if you pair those violent words up with some physical violence that you actually get charged with a hate crime. Like we all have to experience consequences. We have the ability to express, there's no doubt about that, but you have to face that you have to own up to what you say and what you do. There's the band right now, as far as making music, touring, um, where are you guys? Well, in late 2019, we actually made the decision to kind of retire from live touring as a full band. It ended up working out because we didn't know, but the world would completely shut down and live music basically ended anyway. And we instead decided to use that time to focus, like to kind of double down on writing. So we're in the middle of writing and recording an album, um, helping write music for a musical, like a theater piece that's based off my story. And we also started a nonprofit organization. So the Slants Foundation, it exists to provide mentoring and resources to artists, activists of color. And so now we're doing really amazing things like helping fund other people's artistic projects and even organizing our own music business conference specifically for artists of color. Well, a musician, a creative can't really retire. So you guys are just on a whole. That's how I put it. <laughs> the music is, is still in you, but having such a name that could even live beyond you where it, you know, if you wanted to do the boy band uh, thing or a girl band thing and have other younger artists and hey, um, you know, the slant uh, 2.0, 2.1, 2.2 and have, and, and collecting on those royalties, which is a great thing when you get a royalty check in the mail, um, you know, from five, 10 years uh, worth of work. But I, I, I like that. I, I, I wanna know, cause I'm a K-pop fan. And I really want to see like K-pop and Afrobeat do a collab. Like I love the world music, and and I and if I'm you know sparking anything, let me know. We 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 can make this happen. But I need that collab because <laughs> that's just where my mind goes. I'm like, who hasn't collaborated yet? And to you know to do that. So with with the slants being a foundation, and you you're writing you know the book. Um, the, the other group members, what is their, you know, their portion of, you know, contributing? Well, uh, so Joe, Joe Zhang, he's uh, my longtime guitarist and collaborator. He's been helping me co-write a lot of the material. And actually, even though the band kind of stopped touring, like doing the full band show, he's actually been on the road with me quite a bit over the last few years. When I go and speak at places, I'll incorporate music and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of our former band members are involved with the nonprofit as well. So they either help run the organization or volunteer for it. So we all kind of have a different role to play. But I think you're right in that, you know, when I think about what the world is like for the Slants 2.0, it, it's about legacy. It's about like empowering another generation. And that's one of the reasons why our next album is actually going to feature a bunch of other Asian artists uh, throughout the album, either singing or playing guitar or doing these other parts, because we want to use our platform and everything that we built to help make uh, build up their careers and, and to use that as a resource to promote their work and to collaborate with them. Because I really see it as like, this is more of a, this is a lot bigger than my band. Like the band, the bands come and go essentially, but to build a community, a place that has a special space that provides meaning for people, that ultimately is is awesome. Like that's that's the kind of change I want to see in the world. And to all the you know musicians um, who will go to your website, links will be in the description. Whether you're listening or watching, folks, 
Um, you know, you've done, you know, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, NPR, you know, Rolling Stone. You've done these and you've done them not the fake way where people say as seen on and they're on the backlinks. You know, you, you've actually done the, these shows. Can you talk about how you see progress in the profit? Because a lot of folks think, oh, if you're on The Daily Show, that's all I needed to make it. Then I can sit back, retire. I can collect my royalties. I'll be booked, you know, 150 uh, times a year at least. Like, how does it feel to go on, you know, the BBC and USA Today? Do you see an increase in your money? Or is it just that you just went on a show? At the end of the day, it's just being on the show. Like, you don't get paid for a lot of these media appearances. And while the publicity is helpful, I mean, the reality is that you still got to work. You still got to hustle. Like you can go on a big thing. Like, you know, we were really, we loved working with Comedy Central to do the, the daily show with Trevor Noah, but those gigs aren't going to book themselves. Even after you play that show, you still got to go to individual booking agents and kind of make your case of like why you should be booked. You, and you can say like, Hey, we were on all these great shows and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, that's where the proof is, is like, are you able to do that follow-up work? Same thing if like, you know, we had a music video debut uh, like 10 years ago or something on Conan O'Brien. Uh, and we thought, Hey, this is going to blow it up for us. It's amazing. And it was like, people would write us like, Oh, that was cool. I saw you on there. And that was it. It didn't mean they would buy the album. Didn't mean like another tour was launched. It meant I just had to do more work. And so if you have the right team in place, if you have a good work ethic, yeah, you can certainly make the most out of those opportunities and you can, you know, do something pretty cool with it. But if you don't, if you just expect someone to do it for you, that that ain't going to happen. Like, you know, a long time ago, one of my mentors said, there's three kinds of people in the world. Those who make things happen, those who wait for things to happen, and those who wonder what the heck just happened. He always said, be someone who makes things happen. And that's kind of what you got to do with these kinds of opportunities. Like just because you play that major festival or you get that really cool spot on SNL or something like that, it doesn't mean anything's going to happen with your career unless you do the work. Definitely. And I say that because as a consultant, a guy who does PR, I, I'm one of those who talk um, sometimes negatively about PR and say AI is going to replace most of what PR does. But a lot of times people think just good PR, great PR is going to blow them up, but and they don't have to do any work and they don't have to keep creating and keep being a nice, humble person. That's why Ryan Seacrest has all the jobs, because, you know, people like him and you got, you're, he's likable. But um, that, I, I'm glad that you, you said that. Now, in your real life, and, and I say real life because I see, see entertainment as kind of a a dream that, you know, you work towards the goal, you get the dream. What else do you do outside of music right now or outside of writing books? Well, uh, you know, most recently I actually decided to take on a job. So I actually help uh, do marketing and communications for a nonprofit. And I actually, through that, manage and help about 70 other nonprofits across the United States. So I, I kind of dabble in and out of the you know, I guess what people call the real world, uh, because I love holding down jobs because I see it as a way to expand my work and my ability to affect change. And so I, I kind of decided to step away from just doing music and writing full time to be able to do this. I still do plenty of creative work, but 
it was just kind of a change because I wanted to get more involved with uh, policymaking, especially in the last couple of years, I saw what was happening in our country. And I decided like that was the, the kind of work I wanted to jump back into. But yeah, it, it's kind of in and out over the years. My, my guitarist, he, uh, he actually got a job for the first time in like six years <laughs> during the COVID crisis because we aren't performing anymore. And so he had to do a video editing job. It just happens to everybody. I don't know if he's going to stick with it when the world opens up again and we start touring again or not, but you know, for now, like you got to do what you got to do. And if it's something you enjoy and it's able to kind of make an impact on the world, then why not? Definitely. Definitely. And you know, you're a multi-talented um, individual with not just the NBA, but you know, the Berkeley uh, college of music, you, 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 and you have other, other degrees as well. So, you know, maybe those jobs push you. But I'm, I'm hearing one common factor that everything that you do is about helping other people. So I want to know, what is your community give back that you're doing outside of everything you've told us, which was a lot, or that you want to do in the future? Because for some reason, I see um, politics in the future. Uh, Simon Tan, for what office? You know, I... Uh... People have asked me a lot. I don't, I don't see myself as being the person in, in office. I see myself as that troublemaker, as that person that holds the people in office accountable. And that's probably because I still want to spend most of my time creating things, either writing music or writing books. And I don't really want to be stuck in a system where I'm just legislating. That being said, I'm happy to like, you know, speak truth to power. I'm happy to use everything that I create to help see, you know, make changes in those places. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I see myself as an artist first and foremost, and that, that's what I want to ultimately do. So we'll see what happens, but I, I don't, I don't see myself running for office anytime soon. I mean, that, that, that's a long, difficult path. And I think I'm done with long, difficult paths. Well, I mean, you're still young. We're still young. We're not done um, yet. And, you know, for someone like you who can put in the nuance and the, the, the freshness of music and, you know, people are really tired, especially, you know, younger people. And, you know, I say younger people 50 and below of just your same old politician, but, you know, 20 year old folks who are about to vote tired. So you adding the music element and saying, hey, this is not Bill Clinton. He's just going to go on Arsenio and play the sax. This guy's really rocking out everything. Like Trump concert, you're really putting on a concert. And then you're able to talk about why I'm good for business because I can speak Mandarin. I can speak Taiwanese. I can speak Spanish. Ben Aki. Hey, I'm going to let you guys all in. I can, you know, you guys hear me speaking English already because I'm born here and then making a, you know, a joke out of it. And you can, you know, you can mix all of those things in and mixing the music and the politics. I think we're going there because if not, we are going to have in a few years, Kim Kardashian running for office, lawyer Kim Kardashian, that is, um, you know, and we're going to see what reality TV really does. We've already seen a very small portion. So we don't get people like you who actually have common sense, have been trained classically and everything that you're talking about. We're going to start getting like TikTok stars saying, hey, I'm running for mayor, y'all. And just because <laughs> they have yeah. an audience. So I'm putting pressure on you because, oh, man, this world is um, in America is just becoming interesting. 
Hey, you never know what what will happen. But I guess if I do, I'm going to hit you up. I need a I'll, I'll need a campaign manager. You know, <laughs> definitely. And out, out the box, out the box thinking because you know we we're just we're seeing it. Um, but yeah, I, I do. I, I want to get back. If I I don't want to miss a step. Your any community givebacks in the future. You know, maybe they're so grandiose you haven't said them before. And like this is what I really want to do for mankind. But is there is there anything um, I might have missed? No, I, I think my my ultimate goal is to change how people engage with the arts. Like as an artist myself, as someone who's been out there on the road, like just living out of a bus or you know a tour van or something like that. I I think it's interesting that as a society we have this relationship with music where we we really depend on it. I mean, how many people need music to get going, to work out to, to to include in TV shows and movies. And it's just everywhere around us. But as a society, we're not investing in musicians. We're not investing in artists that, that much. And oftentimes when we do, we kind of are like, all right, I'll buy an album. But we see that as almost like a, as an act of charity. What I would love is if as a society, we decided, you know what, let's truly appreciate the arts and see it more as an act of justice. Like my ultimate wish I would love to see a department position at the at the White House, a cabinet position specifically for someone who oversees the arts and the culture because it enriches our life. Like we have education. We got plenty of military people in the cabinet of, of the president, but we don't have anyone who's talking specifically about the culture, the things that we produce. Korea does that. And that's why they're killing it with K-pop. They're exporting it and it's jacking up their economy. Like, we could do the same kind of thing here where like we produce tons of movies. We, you know, we, we invented rock and roll and jazz and all, all these other great musical movements in our country. Why not take that heritage and elevate it to the point where our country says, you know what, this is so important to the happiness and the well-being of our country, as well as being something that's viable for an economic like output around the world that we're going to actually elevate this position to the point where they have a direct access to the president to create laws and support systems that actually benefit all people, especially those who are creating culture. Uh, and what would you call that position? Because I know my folks um, still working in the federal government in DC will say, well, we have the federal music project or we have this that, you know, we pick out the, who's gonna play the trombone. At, no, we're not talking about that. Who's gonna play the bassoon, you know, um, what would you yeah. call that position? Well, you know, they have a department of arts and they have a department of humanities, but they don't actually have a secretary of arts and culture for our country. And so I, I would say like something like that because you have a secretary of defense, why not a secretary of arts and culture? I like that. And Secretary of Arts and Culture. And, you know, the, the U.S. Department has an art and culture, but I've never heard of like the, the secretary. What would you, what, stipi what stipulations would you have on that secretary? Because I could see them like picking somebody, sorry for this, this is me saying it, not Simon, somebody 75 years old, right? saying, hey, I'm arts and culture. And it's like, you're so far away from art and culture. I don't care who you are. You could be Bootsy Collins. You could be whoever you want to be. But you need somebody, I think, somewhat young and somebody, you know, who's kind of with it. So what if we could just draft this up and send this to Biden, what would be some of the job requirements for that person? 
I would say that they need to be um, kind of reporting to an independent board of people that represent arts from across the spectrum of people. See, the problem with like the Department of Arts right now is that they only focus on what they call as fine art, you know, like classical music or classic theater or something like that. But you never see the government promote like a hip hop artist or a punk rock band, right? So you need someone that could kind of act actually understand like what is the majority of the people doing what, what is the majority of the culture that's being created and how do we acknowledge and fund and support that so i think having a board that represents the community at large and people who practice art in a lot of different ways should represent that like yeah like why not fund opera and the ballet that's that's fine and all but the reality is like most people engage with music in very very different ways so that position ought to reflect that Man, that's that's real. And I'm picking on uh, my Irish twin right now. But we did see our, our former president, you know, call out some rappers and not just pardon them, but even on his rallies, little pimp, uh, you know, here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but you, you're right to say folks like the hip hop Congress. I mean, I remember when they, they first came out, it was so radical and, I, and they're a nonprofit and the federal government you know, used to give them a hard time. Now, more recently, I will say I did see like a press release someone sent and hey, the Hip Hop Congress. And I'm like, how many years did it take for you guys to acknowledge this? How could we have steered this music somewhere else if the Hip Hop Congress was, you know, able to say, nah, we're not going to put, you know, Chicago trap, murder, murder on every song. Because what we're going to say is we're going to mix that in with who are giving these guys in Chicago, Oakland, New York, Cincinnati, all these guns, <laughs> you know, talk about this. Because I don't want them to stop talking about real life, but to like kind of put it together where it needs to have some type of, you know, meat to it where we're, we're solving a problem. I don't know if you see that, but I see it in all genres where it's like, is this all we're going to talk about? And, you know, the radio has its job, but... It's not really uplifting in my eyes. I don't know if you feel the same. Yeah, you know, there's always going to be people who will fall into the kind of the trappings of traditional lyrics or sounds within their genres. But, you know, I, I think you're right in that we need to uplift other people who are pushing other kinds of perspectives so we get a holistic picture because people kind of engage with culture in a lot of different ways. And I think the arts should reflect that no matter the kind of music or the kind of books or movies that we're consuming. And so, yeah, I think groups like Hip Hop Congress, I mean, they do really important work. Even, even now they just actually passed legislation in California to have hip hop uh, certified teachers teach uh, you know, history through, through hip hop. And I think that's so incredible. And it shows that like people are doing some really incredible things in the world of education using music because they're realizing that you have to connect with students where they are. If you want to see change, you can't just have them memorizing facts and figures. You got to, the, the kids got to see themselves in the work. And once they do, and we saw this with Hamilton, we saw this with a lot of other pieces of culture, like they start really getting into it and then they can actually begin to learn and bring in all those incredible creative skills to, to the education system that help transform those systems. Wow, wow, you guys have got the game. And, you know, I could go on and on when you mentioned Hamilton, because when I finally got to see it last year on Disney Plus, I was like, I watched it like my kids are tired. Like, come on, it's not really that good. I'm like, you don't understand. If we would have had this growing up, 
And it, I wish more and more um, art, like, you know, the stories could be told that way, because that was so awesome, um, how that was put together. But will, the, will your book, you, could you see it becoming a film? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's possible. I've, I've been in talks with a couple of people. You never know what can happen with it. I, you know, for me, I just wanted to, to share my story through that. And I think a book and the audio book is probably like one of the best ways to do that because you get to kind of control what, what's being said. If someone wants to take it and turn it into something else, then great. Like whenever I talk to filmmakers about it, I say, hey, I just got one rule. You can't replace my band with a bunch of white people. Like <laughs> we know they've tried to do that a bunch of times with other books. And I said, I, I just wanna, if, if, if we can create something that gives more jobs to other Asian Americans, then, then I'm all for it. Like, go for it. Take it and run with it. Man, this, I'm, this is the game overload uh, question that I just have to ask because the hip-hop certified teachers, if you can describe or if you have a website, um, because I, I, I could just see, you know, um, talking about white people, like white teachers saying, so you mean I got to like bebop or something or start breakdancing in, in the class to get, no, you don't have to do that. But can you describe like where that's at, what district or where online people can find more information even on that? Uh, that would be through Hip Hop Congress. Yeah, I just spoke with their executive director about this and how they were able to pass that through the Department of Education in California. I believe they're still developing the curriculum for that. But for folks in Cali, if you want to like get involved, hit them up, Hip Hop Congress. Uh, they also have chapters, uh, dozens and dozens of chapters all throughout the country. And I think they're going to be trying to do similar things in other places as well. But like the other side of it is like, if even if you don't have a chapter of hip hop congress in your area, or maybe you want to see it done through jazz or a country or a different style of music, or a, you know, using a musical like Hamilton. People still can do this by talking and working with their school boards in their particular areas. Like I worked with a bunch of kids out in Oregon, and we made civil rights history a requirement for the first time ever in Portland public schools, and like a comprehensive civil rights history that showed. Um, the backgrounds of the different ethnic identities that the students represented. And that was just kids showing up again and again to these board meetings and telling their parents, telling their teachers, like, this is the stuff we want to learn. When are we going to make this happen? And finally, the school board relented. So it is possible to create change. We just have to be persistent about it. We have to find a community to connect with so that you can go build like people power. But once you do that, like, we can get all kinds of creative solutions to, to addressing those things in the world that we want to see happen. Where do you see the future of learning for someone who, you know, you have are educated in various things. Do you think um, you could have went to Berkeley and got the same type of training if you had to do it virtually? And I'm saying that because is that, you know, should, that not be going on now? Should school like be refunding people and saying, hey, student loans on pause until you can come back? Because, you know, something so particular, I know you were probably an expert before you got there on, on the instrument, but could you have got the education doing it via Zoom the way many students are having to do it now? I think what we're seeing with the COVID crisis is that students, they, they're on a spectrum. Like each people, each kind of student learns differently. Some people engage a lot better via Zoom 
and some people need that in-person experience. So it is important as a society that we offer the full spectrum to students available. Like we, of course, right now with COVID, it, it's making it tough to do all of those kinds of experiences, but to get to a point where we realize like, how can we reimagine like what school is? I think this is the opportunity to sit down and think about that. Because for kids who are like, say like me, I was bullied a ton when I was a kid. I hated going to school. I know there's a lot of other kids like that and who are at home now surrounded by people they love. It's a different experience, right? Like now all of a sudden they feel supported. They don't have to deal with those social pressures. So a lot of the kids of color who are um, struggling in schools are actually doing really, really well now. But we also understand that not everyone has the same level of access. Not everyone could afford a laptop and internet connection. So uh, how do we get kids that classroom experience in a way that's approachable for their family? Like these are all questions I think that are probably not gonna be answered in this particular Zoom session, but I think that it's fodder for people to think about like, how can we ensure that we're actually providing learning? You know, and I, and I would say learning is different than education. Education is going to school and memorizing things to prepare for a standardized test. Learning is a passion that comes within that doesn't, you know, isn't trapped by classroom walls. It's when kids get so hungry for the content that they can't help but go and find books or videos or other resources to expand their knowledge. That's what I would love to see happening more and more. And I think like if schools want more learning to take place, then they have to learn how to integrate culture. Things like what Hip Hop Congress is doing or the teachers that are inc incorporating Hamilton or these other kinds of things. Like, or for me, like if I had an opportunity to learn about like Asian American history and school systems, man, I think I, I would have approached this whole thing a lot differently. Like had I known that Asians have been a part of this country since the 1700s, I think I would have viewed myself a lot differently and, and, and really appreciated uh, what was being taught a lot more. And not just the negative stuff, because I, I feel like all we learned about was slavery. We learned about everybody else's history, but then when you get into Asian history in this country, you hear, oh yeah, and they built the railroads, and hey, and it's like, what did, what, what did the majority do? Just sit back and, you know, it, it wasn't just building the railroads. Talk about the inventions. Talk about, you know, how just, just the back and forth as people everybody was was involved but yeah you guys built the railroads and then you know we put you in some camps and it's like i could only imagine it's the same thing growing up you're like hold on i i don't even want to do history if this is what we're going to talk about because then people get those stereotypes the same way with me uh you guys were slaves and that's all you ever contributed to the world and it's like oh i guess we didn't invent anything <laughs> guess we didn't yeah. build Thing either you know just on our own we did, so i mean I, did you get that vibe coming up in this you know western education system yeah i mean you know when you grow up with a stereotype it's really hard to imagine yourself as anything else other than that it takes a lot of like personal growth and struggle and i think that's something that people don't understand it's like you gotta be able to show kids that there are other possibilities for who they are and that's why i advocate for things like representation especially in entertainment that go beyond these kind of stereotypes because you know kids coming up they gotta understand that they have to see themselves in it they have to see that as a possibility like before barack obama most kids of color didn't even imagine it was possible for them to 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 be 
a president to to hold office. And I, I know a lot of teenagers and a lot of kids like um, told me when I was launching the slants, like, oh, I didn't even know that you could be an Asian American and play guitar in a band and, and, and play rock and roll because they had never had seen it before. It, like just they, they didn't even fathom it. And there's something that happens to our development when we see something like that for the first time. We, we it, it unlocks possibilities within ourselves. And that's something that I think should be considered like a human right. It's just part of extending someone dignity. And, and you know, that's the kind of stuff that we want to see more happen in, in our country. Yeah. And more Asians on TV and not in a, you know, uh, action packed fighting, um, you know, are, you know, I mean, you need everything, but not just playing that one one role because it, it impacts even politicians. When Andrew Yang started running for office, folks were like, well, what country is he from? What country is he from? And it was just so, you know, is, is he tied in with the communists? And it's like, yeah, I mean, how do you even get traction? And now he's running for mayor in New York and hopefully that goes well, because I tell you, I, I, he can't do any worse than any other mayor there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, I, I think you're right. Like, you know, major networks were getting his name wrong. And this was like one of the more serious candidates for the, the presidential office. Like, what are you talking about? They're calling him like John Yang, Jeff Yang. I, so, like they, they couldn't even get it right. Sometimes they would put the, a picture of a different elected official instead of his own picture. It's like they wouldn't do that for Biden. They wouldn't do, you know what I mean? Like they wouldn't have, they didn't do that for Trump. They didn't be like, oh, uh, you know, mix up his name or confuse him with somebody else of a different descent. It's just like, come on, like that, that it shows we got a ways to go. Definitely, definitely. We saw that with Elijah Cummings and, 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 and you know, the different politicians. And it's like, he's like, I didn't know I was dead, but he sees his picture there. And, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, that sucks. Well, you guys have gotten the game. Make sure you check out the book, purchase the book. And if you don't purchase the book, go to your library and demand the book because they buy millions of books. And as an author, I know they've bought some of mine. So I'm always happy when I get a library sale and can look in the cat system and say, yes, okay, they're getting it for free. So thank you for coming on, Simon. We're gonna take this off air, people. Thanks for getting in the game and listening to the Diversified Game Podcast with Kellen, the number one show pairing entrepreneurship with diverse and inclusive perspectives like wine and cheese, bagel and locks, fish and grits. Be sure to visit diversifiedgame.com for all the good stuff. Join in the conversation and discover more content.